us today, and uh, we also have our good friend IQL Rizzoli riding shotgun with us as well on the program today, and um, Austin Washington is our guest. Now, Austin, tell us a little bit about your latest book, my friend. My latest book? Well, my, uh, my first book was called The Education of George Washington, Okay, and it was about a discovery a discovery that uh, a new discovery that explained how he sort of developed his character. His father died when he was eight years old. He didn't have enough money to go to the school that his older half brothers had gone to, and this sort of uh, changed his life. And so I had two books since then that I wanted to publish. But the problem was people had to- people told me that my book you know, made them laugh out loud and taught an important lesson and changed their lives. And I didn't want to write anything else. I didn't want to release anything else that wasn't up to the level of my last book. And that wasn't kind of in the same league of it. And so I've written this crazy, crazy, crazy book now, which weirdly enough ha- expresses some of the same things as my first book, that you never know it by looking at the cover or from when I start to tell you about it. So, okay. the next book is called Trump God King. Don't ask me why. It's called Trump God King. There's a website, trumpgodking.com. And... Uh, Shall we? I, I feel like I'm giving a monologue. Maybe you should interject every once in a while. So well, well, uh, well, 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 uh, IQ. What, 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 what do you make about this uh, IQ? Uh, Trump God King. What do you make of this, my friend? I think Dan is getting in. Yes, yes. L- let me do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang everybody up. I'm gonna call everybody back, and we'll get everything going here. Okay, I don't know what the heck is going on here. I, I I love the world of Skype. I do. It's fantastic. Uh, we are going to see if we can pull in Dan Perkins here. And I've got to call our guest first. So we'll call everybody back. Hopefully. Okay, I think I've got IQ. I am. And I think I've got our guest. And I think Dan Perkins is going to join us here in a few seconds, I hope. Um, Well, Austin, tell us about the book. Tell us all about the book. Right. So what happened was, so it sounds like it's a horribly anti-Trump book, and it's not. I, I, what, I'll tell you, uh, the genesis of the book is very strange. I was actually upset at what happened to Lauren Southern. Do you know Lauren Southern? Uh, no, educate us. Educate us here. Oh, uh, right. Well, she's a blogger from Canada, and she was stopped and actually arrested at the UK border for, um, because she made a joke about Islam. And I thought, you know, this is England, and they used a terrorist uh, act to arrest her. And I thought, you know, we, England is the place from which we get our values. You know, we have the idea of free speech in the modern world started there. And the fact that England has become so sort of left-wing to the, you know, the point of being like a Marxist dictatorship in some regions uh, is just wrong. And I was so mad at England, I just wanted to imagine blowing it up. And I thought Trump could do that. That was sort of the idea. And I just thought I'd write a little story to entertain myself. But what came out was something much different. And so what the book is now is there's a kind of a comic plot about Trump, which uh, my, my first book, people laughed out loud and it taught them an important lesson. It was like 
relatively serious scholarship. This sounds crazy by comparison. But what happens is there's a, a sort of comic plot about Trump in the odd-numbered chapters. And in the even-numbered chapters, there's sort of a, a, a strange kind of... Uh, interjection of George Washington into the picture. And so the comedy comes in one sense from Trump just sort of acting the way Trump acts, except a lot more. Uh, but in, uh, and the, sort of the, the point of the book is to contrast the way George Washington was with the way Trump is. Okay. Um, not, you know, so, so that's it. But it's, it's, it's like, I'd much rather Trump be an office than Hillary for example. Okay, Dan. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm trying to call. I'm trying to call Dan. Uh, Dan, are, are are you there, my friend? Uh, we're, we're having we're having some issues here with with trying to connect you with our guests. Can you hear me, Dan? Dan, can you hear me? We're going to go back over here to uh, Austin, Washington. He is our guest here on our big program, Coast to Coast and Border to Border. He is a uh, amazing, amazing author. He's got a great book. It's titled Trump, God, King. And he's with us today here on our big broadcast. Now, your book is stealing the hearts of reading enthusiasts everywhere. Uh, what elements did you draw upon to develop this book? Well, as I said, on the one hand, I have the absurdity of Trump. On the other hand, deeply ingrained in my system from having spent a really, really, really long time uh, learning about sort of colonial America and George Washington uh, to write my first book, it's kind of a combination and a clash of those values and of those ways of being. You know, my thought about Trump actually is this. He, he was a genius at looking around the world in which he was born in and doing the best thing for himself he could do with it, right? Because the highest ideals we have in this society are sort of money and fame, and he won. But my point is that that can seem silly if you look at it with a satiric lens and if you compare it with other times when people had other priorities and other values. It does make you reflect upon your life and your society and kind of perhaps uh, adjust your thinking about what is possible. We have got a great guest with us today. He joins us live here in our broadcast. He is a fantastic, fantastic guest. He has got a great book out there. Austin Washington with us. And he's got Trump God King. It is an absolutely amazing book. And he's with us today here on iHeartRadio and AMFM247.com. Now, what kind of reactions have you been getting to the book so far? It's TrumpGodKing.com, by the way. Yes, indeed. So, so what, ha- what happened, I, I don't want to, co- you know, you're, I'm sure you're the best radio host in the world. I don't mean to correct you. Not a problem. I've had people do that to me um, all the time. It's now available, as a, there's a preview of it available at Trump God King. Yes. And I'll tell you what happened was, the, 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 the best reaction I got was, and this is why I did it this way. You know, my first book took years to write. It was like, it was a, it was a you know, a co- it was, it was done with the editor. It was like a collaboration. Dan, can you hear me, my friend? Dan Perkins, can you hear me? Can you hear me, Dan? Dan, Dan Perkins, can you hear me? Dan, can you hear me, my friend? And, um, and so, and so, uh, and he said, you know, this is bad. And it's not, it's okay. But what you're doing is you're just, it looks like you're anti-Trump and you're not really making the point you want to make. And that's when I decided to interject George Washington into the book. And that's where it sort of became something worthwhile. So the reaction I'm getting, 
you know, it, it, it is rather slim right now, but it, uh, you know, it, it came from somebody who said my last book was uh, the best book I've written about George Washington, and I waited, this is my third book I've written, and the first one I'm releasing since then, because I wanted to wait till something uh, I thought was as good as that is available. So, Trump God King. Fantastic. We've got Trump God King. We've got the author with us today, Austin Washington. The website is trumpgodking.com. And he joins us today here on our big broadcast, Coast to Coast to Border to Border, on TuneIn, iTunes, and Radio Loyalty. We're going to be joined by Robert Spencer from Jihad Watch. And the middle of the hour, right now our guest is Austin Washington from uh, the website trumpgodking.com. The book is titled Trump God King. And uh, this book, absolutely amazing. Give us the profile of the typical reader who's going to love your book, Austin Washington. Okay, well, I know this sounds very, very strange, uh, but, you know, because... Dan Perkins, can you hear me, my friend? Dan Perkins, can you hear me? Dan Perkins, you're live. Can you hear me, Dan? Dan Perkins, can you hear me, my friend? Dan Perkins. Dan Perkins is not with us. It's not for the you know it's not a base crew you know, vulgar thing. It's kind of clever. It it kind of has some highfalutin ideas in it. One might say, but I think they're expressed in an accessible way. I I wouldn't expect. Uh, I mean I don't know. I I saw a play by Vonnegut the other day in New York, and I was just blown away by the way uh, his sort of way of thinking works, even on a stage. And, you know, he has a very non-linear approach. And I actually have George Washington in the book, who I know very well from my first book, coming in in a very, very strange, Douglas Adams-inspired way. So it's hard to do it. But I'll tell you, with my last book, this lady drove over 100 miles to see me Dan Perkins, can you hear me? You're live, Dan. Can you hear me, Dan? Dan Perkins, going once. Going twice. Sold to the man in the big blue hat, Dan Perkins. I think my last book really, you know, I, I, I think because of the subject, and because, because looking at the sales, it was mainly hardbacks that were sold. I think a lot of the people were sort of like, maybe older. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. And maybe people who just wanted one more book about George Washington. But what I really want is, you know, anyone who wants to laugh, because the book is literally laugh out loud funny, who might want to get a little bit of a reminder about some other ways that we can look at the world as opposed to the ones, the one that we currently live in, which is, as I said, one based on fame and money and, and, and nothing really close to honor or truth or, you know, Dan Perkins, Dan, can you hear me, my friend? I can't hear you. Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Dan? I can't hear you, my friend. We've got a guest. I've got to go back to them. Well, uh, well, well. Austin Washington with us today here in our broadcast, coast to coast, border to border, on TuneIn, iTunes, and Radio Loyalty. The fantastic Austin Washington. Now, um, why do you think that this book will appeal to readers, Austin? Well, I, the, the fundamental, the fundamental. Well, I'm sorry, I'm hearing an echo. The fundamental reason is that 
And I'm not kidding. It really did make people fall off their chairs laughing last time. And so I think, you know, I, to be honest, I don't, I'm reading Tessa the Dividends now, to be honest. But normally, it's so hard in this modern world to have an attention span uh, long enough to read a book. I find, you know, YouTube has, has shortened everyone's attention span. And so this book, it has sort of ideas and ideals that people really ought to know about. I mean, anyone who's an American really ought to think about them. But they're presented in a way that will make you laugh. And I think that's a weird thing. And when I say it makes you laugh out loud, it literally makes you laugh out loud. So if you had to laugh out loud, if you're slightly intelligent or more than slightly intelligent, and if you're interested in making the world and your life better. Because, you know, there's another thing that's talked about in this book. You know, George Washington had this sort of way of becoming successful that uh, was only discovered a couple of years ago, and it was first talked about uh, in my book, uh, it was something that was hidden, in, I mean, it was not hidden exactly, but within his records, but they're just sort of, it was just discovered recently. And so if you also want to learn how to make your life a little bit better, you can get that from the book. You can't have everything for everybody. No, but seriously, uh, you know, I, I can't really be more specific because I was surprised and shocked when I saw the, the wit, the, the, the sort of the, the breadth of the sorts of people who like my book. I, I did a TV show in Los Angeles and you know, the producer's kids came, and they really were interested in it, and they really wanted to meet me. So it's kind of, and I think this book is a lot more broadly appealing than my last book. So, you know, I think everyone who's slightly intelligent. Austin Washington with more. us today. He uh, joins us live. He has a brand new book titled Trump, God, King, and the website, trumpgodking.com. I think we've got Dan Perkins. Dan, can you hear us, my friend? I don't know if we can hear Dan Perkins. We can't hear Dan Perkins. IQ, um, Dan's having some audio issues. Um, listening here to Austin Washington, do you have any questions or any feedback or anything for him? Yes. At the beginning of the conversation, he was talking about somebody who was coming from a lady coming from Canada and was stopped at the border. Oh, 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 right. Yeah, I, I was simply saying that that was, that was kind of the spark that got me writing. There's, a, there's an internet, it's funny you don't know about her, she's quite um, well known on YouTube at least, but she's a kind of a, 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 an internet blogger and she had made a kind of a joke. It wasn't really a joke about Muslim Islam, it was actually uh, a sort of a stunt to show that the, the police in England would crack down on free speech if it was kind of offensive to uh, Islam, but wouldn't do so if it was offensive to Christianity. And she thought that was kind of, you know, an interesting way that London has gone these days. But because of that, she was literally arrested under terrorist charges and held in prison for a day before she was banned from the country for literally making a joke. And that just made me sort of so mad at the way this world is going. Because, you know, I'm all for being polite and respectful, but you shouldn't be arrested and put in prison for a joke in the West, much less anywhere else in the world. And that was kind of, you know, to be honest, that's not really, that's kind of a little, that's the plot of the book, but it's not the point of the book. The point of the book is more just fun, you know, it's, it's kind of about, it's not really political, it's more about character, I would say. Yeah, but I mean, what, what the world would, what started you is correct. What's happening today in both in the United States of America and in Europe, as you said, you can curse Jesus, you can curse the Jews, but you can't discuss Islam. Yeah. James, and, uh, 
Dan Dan is attempting to call. I am going to try to get him on this call here um, because I I, I I can't go to him and and hang up Skype. We've got our guest with us here. Um, Austin Washington joins us. He has got a. Uh, Fantastic, fantastic book. It is uh, out there. It is uh, an amazing, amazing read. And he joins us today here on Skype. We are trying to get Dan Perkins into the conversation here as well. Um, IQI Rizzoli joins us here on our Thursday edition here on our big program for Talk America Live and iHeartRadio. And um, Austin Washington has a great book. It's called Trump God King. And... um, so, so tell us a little bit about uh, what you hope the book does. What are some of your goals for the book? Well, let me, I, I hate to, to do this again, but I was told to. So TrumpGodKing.com. There you go. What the, what there the you book, go. Well, that's it's an a website. Question. I'll, I'll tell you. But, but here's something interesting, and I think this is actually really interesting. I, um, I don't know where to start. There's two halves of this comparison. I heard something about Cicero the other day, and it was about a book that he presumably, I don't know, took a year to write. He wrote his book, he spent maybe a year writing it, and then he had 12 of his friends over, and he read it to them. And I thought, what a different world it was when people did things to kind of make the world a better place, rather than for some sort of commercial reason. I was in a Barnes & Noble recently, and there was a book by a Harvard professor called How Not to Suck. And I feel that when you go into a bookstore these days, you don't even see books that book like products. There's a, you know, there are a few real bookstores in the world, but in Barnes & Noble, they're not even books. So my goal for the book, I, like, honestly, my goal is to put something out there that's better than other stuff. I know that sounds really arrogant and egotistical and vain, but the truth is, there's so much junk out there. And I, as I said, this is the third book I've written since my last one, and the first one I thought was worthy of releasing, because I don't want to put anything out there that's not good. So honestly, if people laugh out loud, laugh out loud so much that when they're on an airplane reading it and they laugh out loud, people ask them what they're reading, and it spreads like that, you know, I'm happy. I was, I was so proud and happy that my first book, you know, made people laugh out loud and taught them a lesson, and people were, you know, buying extra copies. I got comments on Amazon. People bought extra copies for their friends. People bought the, you know, the, uh, the electronic version and then got the hardback. And so, you know, if I have that kind of an effect, on even just the few people I know that that happened to, that's really enough for me. I, I, I think it's such a sick and twisted society we live in. Where And it wasn't true, apparently, you know, a generation or two ago. But when they talk about movies on, on the radio, say on NPR even, which you know, you'd think had some kind of standards, they never talk about how good the movie is. They talk about box office grosses, as if that's the measure of quality. And I just think that, that, that you know, I am doing this I made a very, very uh, provocative name and a very, very funny cover. And, you know, because I'm influenced by the society, and at some level I want people to read it. But I would be infinitely more happy if, you know, a hundred people loved it and it really made them think about their lives and it really made them change the way they saw things than if 10,000 people kind of read it and didn't care. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. 
We have got the uh, great Austin Washington. He joins us today here on our web here on our uh, website jiggyjaguar.com, also iHeartRadio, AMFM247.com. Tune in, iTunes, and Radio Loyalty. The book is titled Trump God King, and the website is trumpgodking.com. That's trumpgodking.com. And Austin Washington is the grand nephew of President George Washington, and has penned a brand new ebook that he is offering. The first chapters for free to download available at trumpgodking.com the book is entitled trump god king and um austin this book incredibly well written uh talk to us a little bit about what what you hope the book accomplishes what what you want people to do with the book all these things uh well i'll tell you something else that, that, that i was thinking about the other day that's really really bizarre I, I, so what, what, you were talking about what I hope it ha- the effect it has on other people. But there is some weird, strange thing in our society which still exists and I don't understand it. If I am on our cable news show as an expert, people view me with more credibility. And yet, the way you get on one of those shows is by paying $36,000 to a publicist for a year and it kind of increases your reputation and you're on the show. And it doesn't say anything about the, the quality, you know, uh, of your character or uh, of your work. And, and so a little part of me thought, well, you know, last time I, was, I had a PBS show about my, my first book and maybe the time of radio shows. And I thought, well, maybe this time I should start going on all of those, those shows as a kind of, you know, some, some kind of Mark Stein commenter on society. And I started to realize that I don't believe anything in the media much. You know, I, it's all so biased and slanted. And I, get, and I kind of am much more partial to uh, sort of the, the, the way the world is evolving. Like, for example, I was talking about Lauren Southern earlier. She's a kind of a journalist who just does YouTube. I think somebody must fund her. I don't know where she gets the money to do her thing. So, you know, I mean, to the extent, I, I can't, you know, it's such a difficult question to answer. I... I I think it's, in this kind of world in which we live in, uh, the future is unknown, and it's unknown where <laughs> this book will take me. I was shocked and surprised, as I said, that last time people drove, you know, drove you know, really far just to see me and to tell me that the book you know, affected them and made them laugh and changed their lives. And as I said, that's what I'd like it to do. I, I, I don't know what else to say. I, I was talking... Do you want to hear a little story about an author story, if you have a few more minutes? Yes, tell us all about it, my friend. Okay, so there's this guy called, oh, the guy who wrote, um, oh, The Alchemist. You know that guy, The Alchemist, that book? It's a really, really famous book. And he came to my university once, and he was talking about his famous book called The Alchemist, that knew Paul Kaleo, that's it, that sort of changed lives around the world. And I remember looking at him and thinking how sad and lonely he was, because he'd sort of put himself up into, into this position where he was kind of on a pedestal. And people were looking at him as if he had some sort of special magical power because he'd written this supposedly, you know, quasi-spiritual book. But I just thought I was so much happier being me than being him. And the reason I say that is one of the most important things that George Washington said throughout his life, from the beginning of his life, at least very early on to the end, was that he felt he was guided by this thing called providence. Now, he went to church because he had to go to church, or he, you know, it was part of what his duties as a member of the society, you know, the society in which he lived. 
But he would often leave the communion because he didn't actually believe that much. But he so, so deeply believed in this thing called providence that, for example, there was a, a battle where he was uh, shot. And his telling of it changes throughout his life. He was shot you know, early in his life when he told the story. There were like two bullets through his hat, one through his cape. And later on, the number of bullets increased. But the point is, when he wrote to his commanding officer and when he wrote to his mother, he said, uh, you know, I was very fortunate. But when he wrote to his, his, his uh, uh, closest uh, brother that he was closest to, he said, you know, Providence saw me through. And at the same time, the Indian, the you know, American Indian who was, who was a marksman and he was assigned specifically to shoot George Washington in this battle, stopped after a while because he said, you know, this guy is pr protected by the great spirit. And, and I think that that's what, that actually, that sort of theme comes, is in my first book, and it's also in this book. It sounds out of place, perhaps, but it's there. And I think of all, you know, the things that George Washington sort of represents, that's one that's never talked about. And I think that's the most important, that, that he, he felt and believed that somewhere inside him was this kind of, divine thing and that it sort of guided him and protected him and and you know, to be honest if if this book had any effect it, uh, in the world that would make me happy it would be if more people sort of thought about that it's especially hard to do in this world where when you wake up no offense you turn on the radio and then you check your phone and you check your messages and you go to, I heard the other day that the average American spends 11 hours a day um, consuming quote unquote media, and all of you listeners are consuming media now, and it's a great thing to consume this media. But I, I, I think that there, there is that kind of thing that, that George Washington felt throughout his life that lots of people feel. But I think it's the most important thing in any of of his writings, and it's throughout his life, throughout his writings. And so, if people could sort of think about that a little, that would be. And you don't need to read my book, TrumpGodKing.com. <laughs> you don't need to read it to think about that. If you just think about that after the show is over and after you've bought all the products from the commercial sponsors, um, it would be. It would be. That would be. You know, my. I think the greatest uh, accomplishment because it, it's a hard thing to do in this in this cacophonous world. Well, uh, I appreciate you making time for us today. Austin Washington with us today. He's got Trump God King, the website, TrumpGodKing.com. That's TrumpGodKing.com. And for the people in the cheap seats in the back, TrumpGodKing.com. <laughs> Write it down. It's TrumpGodKing.com. Austin, I appreciate you being with us here on, here on uh, TrumpGodKing.com. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. TrumpGodKing.com. Awesome. Appreciate it. TrumpGodKing.com. It's TrumpGodKing.com. We got more coming up on TrumpGodKing.com.
Attention type 2 diabetics. If you or a loved one has taken Invokana, Invokamet, or Invokamet XR, or other inhibitors for type 2 diabetes and suffered amputation of the toes, feet, or legs, you may be entitled to substantial financial compensation. The FDA has warned that Invokana, Invokamet, or Invokamet XR, and other inhibitors for type 2 diabetes cause an increased role in amputations of the toes, feet, and legs. If you or a loved one has taken Invokana, Invokamet, or Invokamet XR, or other inhibitors for type 2 diabetes and suffered amputation of the toes, feet, or legs, you may be entitled to substantial financial compensation. Act now. Time is limited to file a claim. For a free cons- okay, we are going to go to Robert Spencer. <laughs> Hello? Hey, Robert. What's going on, my friend? It's James Lowe from iHeartRadio. How are you today, my friend? Great. How are you, James? Pretty good, actually. I apologize that we're getting to you a couple minutes early, but we had a guest. Uh, basically, they kind of flamed out, so I uh, I wanted to get to you. <laughs> and, uh, no problem. Actually, and... I thought you were late. No. no... I had you down at 5 o'clock. Oh, okay. Well, I had you down for 30 after. I apologize. We, we, we got... We got... We got both of our, uh, our our radars crossed there. I apologize, <laughs> my friend. And uh, no we've all. got Robert Spencer with us today. He joins us live here in our broadcast. And uh, you can get more information on our website, JiggyJaguar.com. We've got a uh, complete uh, information up there on Robert's books and everything that he's doing. We are going to bring in our other panelists here, IQ Al Rizzoli. We're also going to bring in uh, the great Dan Perkins. And we are going to see if we can get Dan Perkins in here because uh, our last our last segment where we tried to get Dan in it was kind of a cluster so <laughs> we are hoping that we can get Dan in here for this interview and uh Robert Spencer joins us today here in our broadcast. By the way, uh, Austin Washington's interview is available on our website at JiggyJaguar.com, and I believe we're being joined by the great IQ Al Rizzoli. And um, IQ, um, that last guest, I, 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 I apologize, my friend. That was just kind of a hurricane. <laughs> but... Um, but we've got our we've got our guest with us today, Robert Spencer, director of Jihad Watch. He is the also the author of the history of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, and uh, he joins us today here on Skype. And um, Robert, first of all, talk to us a little bit about this book because this is absolutely absolutely amazing. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book. Absolutely, this is the first and only, huh? No, I go ahead, my that. friend. Go ahead. Uh, go is... ahead. I just want you to tell us about the book. Gotcha. <clears throat> I uh, understood. This is the first and only comprehensive narrative history of jihad in the English language. It is the first book <clears throat> to cover every aspect of jihad, not just the jihad against Europe, but the jihad against India, which is a terrifying story that is very little known in the United States, and the jihad elsewhere. This is the first full one-volume treatment of the entire phenomenon, and it shows that wherever there are Muslims and non-Muslims, there has been conflict started by the Muslims. This is not to say that every Muslim has done it, but a sufficient number has to create an ongoing war that has gone on now for 1,400 years, and that most Americans have no idea is even being waged. 
Now, IQ, uh, IQ Al Rizzoli, I know you have some questions here for uh, for Robert about this book, so I'll, I'll I'll get the heck out of the way and let, let you chat, my friend. James, let me tell you something. I am with Robert practically every day. He doesn't talk to me. I don't talk to him, but I read his articles on Jihad Watch. We are reading the same script. There are very few human beings who can debate Islam in public and not lose. And Robert is one of them. Uh, Robert, I know about your book. I read many of your books. We are on the same wavelength. I contribute to your uh, Jihad Watch in, not articles, unfortunately, but in comments. I would love to be able to be sending you articles if you permit me. Sure, send them all. Send away. Send to director at jihadwatch.org and I'll take a look. Thank you very much. I don't want to ask any questions from you because I know exactly what you're doing. <laughs> now, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, just correct me if I'm wrong on two items. It is impossible to be both a good Christ, uh, Muslim and a loyal citizen among non-Muslims kuffar. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you're a knowledgeable and devout Muslim, then there's no way that you can pledge allegiance to an infidel nation-state. And uh, the, the law of Islam will be paramount for you and take precedence over every other allegiance. And so it would be possible for you to pledge allegiance, for example, to the flag of the United States of America. The next question. Every single <coughs> compliant Muslim is automatically the mortal and eternal enemy of every non believing Muslim, sorry, non-Muslim, called Kuffar, 80% of current humanity. Am I right? Yeah, the Quran says, do not take the unbelievers as your friends and protectors in preference to believers. Whoever does this has nothing to do with Allah, unless you're doing it to guard yourselves against them. That's chapter 3, verse 28. Chapter 5, verse 51 explicitly rules out Jews and Christians as friends of the Muslims. The idea is that uh, is summed up in chapter 48, verse 29 of the Quran. Muhammad is the apostle of Allah. Those who follow him are merciful to one another and ruthless to the unbelievers. The reason I'm asking these questions, because I have said this on many occasions on American radio talk shows, including with James, and they find it very difficult to accept whether I'm telling you the truth or not. Please, you are corroborating me. But the last item, I have concluded based, of course, on the Qur'an and Hadith, that Allah, the God of Islam, is not the same as the God of the Bible. In fact, Allah is not God. What do you think? Absolutely, yes. The word is used by Arabic-speaking Christians, but the fact is that if you look at the teachings of the Qur'an and the teachings of the Bible about the nature of God, then you do not have the same being. For example, in the New Testament, uh, God says uh, it says that uh, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth whereas in the Quran it's just the opposite Allah says I believe it's chapter 32 verse 23 he says that uh, he could have guided everyone to the truth but instead he's going to fill hell with jinns the spirit beings and men and so that is just the opposite impulse he could have saved everyone but he decided not to that's uh uh, certainly not the, the God of the Bible. I've always asserted that since the Quran makes it 
crystal clear that God has predestined humanity to either believe or not believe, then he cannot possibly be a merciful God. What do you think? Yes. Well, the Quran always insists that Allah is merciful, but there really isn't any mercy. If he's creating some people for hell and not guiding them to the truth knowingly, how is that merciful? Exactly. You see, we are talking the same language. So, please continue about your book. Yes. I was interested. I was interested mostly in about what happened between the Arabs and the Muslims in India. Could you tell us about it? Absolutely. This is the first book to detail the horrifying story of the jihad in India, and it uh, shows that it was especially bloody because the people of India, the Hindus of India, were not the people of the book. The people of the book is the Quran's term for the Jews and the Christians, who uh, uh, they have legitimate revelations according to the Quran, but have twisted them and changed them from their original meanings. And so they need to be subjugated under the rule of the Muslims, but they are, uh, because they have legitimate religions, they are allowed to practice those religions as long as they submit to the uh, the hegemony of the Muslims. But the Hindus are not people of the book, so they do not have that privilege. They have to either convert or die. And even though it became early on in the jihad against India, it became impossible to kill all the Hindus who would not convert to Islam. And so they were granted honorary people of the book status and allowed to submit to the rule of the Muslims. At the same time, the uh, in the Muslims in India were still extraordinarily uh, brutal to the non-Muslims, uh, especially in regard to their temples, and thousands of Hindu temples were destroyed because it was considered that this was something that the Muslims had to do to show that idolatry had been defeated by the Muslims. And so the jihad against India, it's an appalling story. It's a story that Americans need to know. It certainly uh, uh, gives a lot of, sheds a lot of light on what is going on in the uh, between India and Pakistan even to this day, and in general in Asia. And so it's very important that it be known, and it is not known for, for the most part. Another question. You mentioned that the Muslims say that the Jews and the Christians perverted their book. You know as well as I yeah. do, there's not a single Muslim on planet Earth who can prove it, for one simple reason. In the Quran, Muhammad tells his followers, or Allah tells the followers of Muhammad, that if you don't believe in what Muhammad is saying, go to the people of the book to prove it. So until yeah, that's Muhammad chapter 10, verse 94. Yeah, so until Muhammad's time, <coughs> there was no chance that it was perverted. So how was it perverted? That's right. But well, it's an impossibility, and it shows the uh, falsehood of Islam, because... For the uh, Muslims to have been, if Muhammad was referred, as you note, in chapter 10, verse 94, to uh, the Jews and Christians to determine whether what he's being told is true, then obviously the Jews and Christians had the authentic revelations that they received from Allah at the time of Muhammad. But we have copies of the Old Testament and the New Testament from before the time of Muhammad, and they're the same as what we have now. And this, therefore, indicates that uh, there was no corruption of the scriptures. They were never changed. Oh, and I did want to correct one thing. I earlier said that the passage that says we could have guided everyone to the truth 
but Allah instead says, I will fill hell with jinns and men. That's 32.13. So chapter 32, verse 13 of the Quran. This is why neither you nor I in the debate can be defeated. Because we know the subject. And we never lie. We don't have to lie. This is the most remarkable thing. No, my it's all clear. Yeah, my research, literally, I've come to one simple conclusion. When somebody actually studies Muhammad's Quran and Muhammad's Sunnah, they self-destruct. They literally discredit Muhammad as a prophet and the alleged divine origin of his Quran. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. The, the uh, Quran says, remember, chapter 5, verse 101, that the, uh, the Muslims should not ask questions. And some people have lost their faith because they've asked questions. And so it's very important for Muslims not to ask questions, but simply to accept what they're told. And so uh, many Muslims, because they start to ask questions, this is indeed when they begin to question, when they begin to doubt and to realize that what they're being told has not been true. But this was the genius of Muhammad. The reason he inserted that verse is because when they were asked questions by Jews or Christians or more secular Arabs, he couldn't answer them. So he injected this verse whereby nobody could answer or ask questions. And this is why, in my simple conclusions, Muhammad Muhammad is the least productive, least inventive, least creative in human history. Irrespective of how much they gloat over what happened a thousand years ago. In my studies, I found out that most of the people who contributed under Islam to the sciences were either secular or not followers of Muhammad, although they were under Islam. What do you think? Yes, the, uh, there's a whole lot of attention given to the uh, supposed inventions that are, Islam is responsible for. But many of the things that Islam is given credit for were actually the creation of Muslims who were considered heretics. The Islamic philosophy of Avicenna and Averroes uh, and others, they were uh, routinely condemned as heretics by their fellow Muslims for engaging in philosophy. So they may have had a tremendous influence upon the philosophical development of the Western world, but in the Islamic world they had virtually no effect. And it's the same thing with the inventions. Many of the inventions were done by people who were known as Muslims, but the invention itself had nothing to do with their being Muslim. And even worse, many of the inventions that are attributed to Islam or many of the innovations, such as the creation of the first hospital and so on, these things are plain falsehoods. In many cases, it was Christian Arabs or Jews under the rule of the Muslims who were responsible for these things, but because the rulers were Muslim, they are the ones who get the credit. This is amazing. I mean, we are on the same wavelength every single time. For the simple reason, because we have studied the same subject, we read the same scripture, and we had no choice but to come to the same conclusion. Except that the Muslims cannot. Well, yes, uh, go on. Well, it's just, it, it's obvious that <clears throat> we come to the same conclusion because we look at, we evaluate the uh, data and we are accurate in reporting what it says and that the Muslims challenge us because they are not willing to acknowledge and they don't want people to know the uh, the, the actual content of what's in Islamic teaching. Have you had any 
confrontation in a debate with any Muslim? Yes, I've debated quite a few, as a matter of fact. And you can find the debates, many of the debates, on YouTube uh, of my debating various imams and other Islamic spokesmen. But how did you end up with them? I don't understand. You should have defeated them. They, I should have defeated them or they should have defeated me? No, you should have defeated them, obviously. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that's exactly what happened every time. Uh, and uh, the people can see the debates and evaluate for themselves. Right. We've got a, a great guest with us today. Robert Spencer joins us here in our broadcast. He has got a, a fantastic website, jihadwatch.org. And uh, Robert Spencer is the director of Jihad Watch. He's with us today here on our big broadcast. He has a fantastic book. It's available on Amazon. And uh, this is just an amazing, amazing book The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. We've also got IQ Al-Rizzoli with us today, and um, Robert, IQ has been talking about some some of the things you talk about in your book. He is, as he mentioned, he's been on our radio broadcast for a, a many years. Um, he's been on a, a lot of different uh, television broadcasts as well. Um, why do you think that this continues to be a big issue uh, with Islam when, when there are folks like IQ and yourself out here speaking out? Um, how, how, how does that get buried, I guess? Well, there's a concerted effort to bury it. People uh, portray us as ignorant, as Islamophobes, without actually refuting anything that we say or showing anything that we say to be hateful or bigoted or any of the things that they charge. They just make the charge and then use that as an excuse to ignore us and to uh, not confront the truths of what we are producing. And so this is a, it's simply a, an effort to obfuscate and to confuse people and to uh, make them think that things are other than what they are that they are, there's a concerted effort, in short, at deception. And the American people are being lied to. They're being lied to by people who are powerful and have a great deal of influence. And consequently, most of them have no idea of the truths of these things, so that if they were to come across one of us talking about them, they would probably think that we were the ones not telling the truth. Robert, would you tell our listeners about your attempt to start a TV station, if I remember? Yeah, uh, it's not actually a full-fledged TV station, just a studio. Uh, what I'm trying to do is I was given the possession of a uh, former TV studio. There's a little bit of equipment in it, but it's an unfinished space. And I'm hoping to raise a little money to make it into a studio and to uh, uh, make regular videos from there uh, with guests and on various issues, bring my books uh, into video form, so that uh, people who don't read books, which is unfortunately an increasing number of people, can have access to the material. This is something that's going to be a long-term effort, but I have started a, uh, an account on Patreon for that, and so those who are interested in that can go to Patreon and read about it. Would you be interviewing people? Yeah, I hope so. I hope that ultimately uh, I'll be doing that over Skype or some other method, and maybe even in studio. Good luck. I wish you the best. Thank you. We've got uh, Robert Spencer with us today. He joins us live here in our broadcast. He's the director of Jihad Watch and author of the brand new book, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS. Now, tell us a little bit about the writing process for this book, my friend. Well, the 
Well, this book uh, was, I, I tried to base it entirely, or as much as possible, on eyewitness accounts and on accounts of the uh, uh, court historians in many cases. A lot of the Muslim rulers, they had historians on their staffs, and the historians would write pretty much as things happened, a history of their reigns. And a lot of them, they, they, it's kind of hair-raising reading, because they uh, were writing about how wonderful and glorious this ruler was, and glorying in the brutality and the violence of his reign. So that in itself is revealing. I try uh, always to highlight those accounts so that people can see this is what exactly these uh, uh, these people think of these things. They don't think they're doing anything wrong. They think they're doing something that is a wonderful service to Allah. Isn't jihad actually the sixth pillar and the most important pillar of Islam? Oh, yes, certainly. Uh, there's no uh, excusing from jihad. Every Muslim has to wage jihad in some way. That doesn't mean that they'll be engaging in violence or terror attacks. There's also the jihad of the tongue, jihad of the pen, jihad of the pocketbook. But it's all designed to work toward the same goal, which is the imposition of Sharia over the world. How can you explain Western societies, the leaders in Western societies, in Western Europe especially, allowing their countries to be invaded, literally, by Muslims? How can you explain it? It's a very strange phenomenon. And as a matter of fact, the last chapter of this book is entitled, The West Loses the Will to Live because it discusses that and uh, shows how the non-Muslim rulers of Western Europe, uh, as well as in North America, with the exception of Donald Trump, are the greatest aiders and abettors of the jihad initiative nowadays. And so the uh, Western Europeans appear to be socialist internationalists who want to erase all borders and distinctions between people. And so they are bringing in massive numbers of Muslim migrants into their countries without caring in the least, apparently, about the uh, fact of the teachings of Sharia and the supremacist idea that Islam must dominate and not be dominated. And so this is the reason why there are Sharia enclaves growing in Washington and why they're only going to increase. Uh, the, the, there's only going, it's, it's inevitable that there's going to be conflict between Muslims and non-Muslims in Europe unless the non-Muslims simply surrender outright. I see there are signs in Europe of people waking up, literally. Uh, Europeans I'm talking about. It's happening in Eastern European countries. It's happening in Austria. It's happening in Italy. And I'm hoping, honestly, I've been hoping for five years, in fact, there will be an uprising against the elitists, uh, the leftist elitists who are in control in Europe. Do you think it's going yeah. to happen? It's a great sign of hope. Uh, all the countries that you enumerated, as well as the continued success of Herrick Wilders in the Netherlands and some others, uh, there's a chance that the Europeans could turn this around. I think it's going to be very difficult at this point, and it's not going to be without uh, some violence. This is not to say that I'm recommending any violence or approving of any. I'm saying that Muslims in Europe are going to be violent if their desires to impose Sharia in various places are thwarted. But there is a chance that free societies can indeed be preserved, at least in some parts of Europe. How do you think this can be done? Even if we assume every single European country 
turns around and become, let's say, what they call them rightist, which is really patriotic. How do you resolve, in your opinion, how can you resolve the fact that there are millions of Muslims already in Europe who will never integrate, who will never assimilate? Well, there's going to have to be the point made that there's one law for all people. One law for all people. No Sharia, no enclaves where Islamic law is enforced, but only one law. And those who do not obey the one law and have no desire, no uh, intention of ever obeying the one law, then at a certain point they're going to have to be deported. That's that simple. And the Muslims who are uh, willing to renounce in word and in deed, sincerely and honestly, the aspects of Sharia that are at variance with the laws of the land, and who, in other words, are going to have to give up these aspects of Islam that have led to jihad all these centuries, but give them up sincerely and in a way that can be verifiable, then they're welcome to stay. Uh, but if they're going to be people who are creating conflict around the continent and trying to Islamize it, then uh, at a certain point the Europeans are going to have to decide whether they're going to simply allow that and be Islamized or invite these people to go and make it clear that they're not welcome in Europe. I hope they will wake up to the second one, and I hope they do that soon. Because even in England, as I'm speaking to you now, they are allowing Sharia to take over. Yes, that's quite right. It's a very dire situation in uh, the UK, especially because the uh, British government appears to be determined to appease and accommodate Muslims wherever possible and uh, has no apparent interest in asking them to obey the laws of the land. The trouble is the collusion also of the police and the media. By the way, this, happened, yes. see, this is exactly the same thing as was happening in America. The media is corrupt. The media is fake. In Europe, it's also the media is corrupt and fake. They never tell the truth about Muslims. You can curse Jesus, you can curse the Jews, you can curse the Hindus and the Buddhists. But if you tell the truth about Islam, they arrest you. Yes, you're quite right. And this is a very dire situation, because the freedom of speech is the foundation of any free society. And if this continues, there will not be free societies in Europe. Uh, and yet the uh, tremendous amount of police resources in the UK is designed to track, is now devoted to tracking down so-called Islamophobia online. In other words, they're not dealing with real crime. They're making sure that nobody says anything they don't like about Muslims and Islam. And if this continues, then Britain will be dead as a free society, and Muslims will be established as a privileged class who are able to do whatever they wish without being criticized. But Islamophobia is an oxymoron. There's no such thing as Islamophobia. Because if you study Islamophobia, Islamophobia is a rational fear of Islam. But fearing Islam is totally rational. And in fact, not fearing Islam would be irrational. Hence, Islamophobia is oxymoron. Yes. Islamophobia was, is a term that was devised in order to intimidate people, in order to frighten people, and make them think that it's wrong to resist jihad terror. And so this is... Uh, uh, Islamophobia is really just a, a tool, a weapon that the enablers of jihad terror and Sharia oppression use to silence their critics.
but you have explained it to them that it is not a derogatory item. We had just explained that Islamophobia doesn't exist actually. There is no such thing as Islamophobia because fearing Islam is totally rational. So millions of people have been listening to you, millions of people have been listening to me. Why aren't they saying to the people who are accusing them that they are stupid and wrong? <laughs> well, they might be. I think they are in many cases, but the people who are you know, purveying the Islamophobia myth have all the access, all the media presence. They're the ones who are on the talk shows. And so uh, people are propagandized. They are constantly uh, told that Islamophobia is this major concern and uh, that jihad terror is a lesser concern. And this propaganda has been very effective, such that uh, when I go to speak on college campuses, it's as if Jack the Ripper were speaking. And yet I'm sure that at any of these college campuses where I've been shouted down and threatened and, and uh, ridiculed and uh, defamed and everything else, that if a Guantanamo jihadi shouting death to America showed up, he would be welcomed and hailed, as a matter of fact, as a hero. But that's what's happening in all these students, among the students in Europe also. Most of them are leftists because we had 60 years, both in America and in Europe, of being indoctrinated by leftist intelligentsia. Leftists. Yes, leftists. that's right. No doubt about it. The left is uh, uh, aiding and abetting the advance of the jihad today. Apparently, the uh, conclusion is that the uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend, and they think that they, they hate Western civilization so much, they hate the United States, they hate the Judeo-Christian tradition so much that they see the uh, jihadis that have been set against all these things for all these years, and they say, oh, there's my ally. And so uh, they are allying with the jihad to bring down the West, but once if they are successful in this, they are going to be sorry to find that their allies turn on them, but by then, of course, it will be too late. Obviously. I wish you the best. Thank you. You too. We've got Robert Spencer with us today. As we wrap up here, uh, I want to start with IQ. How do we get a hold of you online and uh, pick up your material and everything else? Well, as you, as I said, I've got my trilogy of books, Lifting the Veil, the True Faces of Muhammad and Islam. And also, if you just Google my name, Al-Rasooli, A-L-R-A-S-S-O-O-L-I, you have everything free of charge. Fantastic. You want to know and uh, Robert, how do we get a hold of you online and pick up your books and everything else? Uh, it's all you can find it all at jihadwatch.org, and that is updated many times daily with news and commentary about jihad activity that you will not find anywhere else. And the books are at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and in any self-respecting bookstore. Fantastic. Well, uh, I appreciate it. This 